0: Now, a lot of things come over from the Orient. A lot of things come over from the Orient. And some things have a big impact on us and some things don't.
1: This is Stephen Dollins. Dollins describes himself as an ordained prophet, author, karate enthusiast and former pro wrestler. He also says he's a former high priest in the Church of Satan. Somewhere in the course of what was clearly one hell or, excuse me, heck of a life, he devoted himself to the Lord and specifically to warning people about the hidden satanic messages in seemingly innocuous children's entertainment.
0: I can't think of anything that came over from the Orient that actually had a big impact or a phenomenon-type craze other than
1: Godzilla. Around the turn of the millennium, Dollins appeared on the Prophecy Club TV show, to sound the alarm about an invader from the East. There is something
0: new that's come over to the United States. Japanese kids have been watching this thing since 1995. It started out as a cartoon, went to a comic book. They made it into a video game, went to toys, collectible
1: card game, and it's called Pokemon. You can watch this on YouTube and you really should. At one point, Dollins, who, by the way, has a kick-ass mullet and a goatee, gets out the laser pointer and shares some disturbing findings about an already infamous Pokemon.
0: This character over here is called Mewtwo. Now you notice that he has a particular salute that he's given. Every time that you see Mewtwo, he's in this pose. And that doesn't mean hook'em horns, doesn't mean I love you, it means hail Satan.
1: When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when you're a living, breathing Danny McBride character who's worried about Satan taking an active role in human affairs, you start to see the devil just about everywhere. But beginning in the late 1990s, when the army of tiny cute monsters known as Pokemon first debuted in this country, Dollins was by no means the only American for whom these visitors from Japan represented something frightening. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. Soon after it debuted in Japan, Pokemon was not just a hit, but a multimedia phenomenon. But believe it or not, Nintendo, the corporation that controlled it, wasn't sure this game about pixelated pocket monsters would translate internationally. In this episode, we'll find out how some key stateside players set up Pokemon for success in America and the rest of the world. We'll look at the pandemonium and occasional racism with which the initial Pokemon onslaught was greeted on these shores. And we'll explore what was really behind our anxiety at the dawn of the Pokemon era. Chapter 3. Satanic Consumption By 1998, the Pokemon craze was in full swing in Japan, and Nintendo was preparing to bring two parts of the franchise to America, the video games and the animated TV series. Both were big hits in Japan, but there was no guarantee they would translate overseas. The launch of Pokémon outside Japan would be overseen by a Nintendo marketing executive named Gail Tilden, and it would begin with the retooling of the Game Boy video games Pokémon Red and Pokémon Blue for the international market. Gail had been with Nintendo's U.S. subsidiary Nintendo of America for about 15 years. She admits that when she was first introduced to Pokémon, she didn't get it right away.
2: Seeing an RPG on a Game Boy, you know, with characters that aren't well defined and, you know, of course, all the names of the characters at the time were in Japanese, I probably was not that enthused. But in
1: 1998, Gale had just been promoted to vice president of brand management, which meant setting up Pokemon for its international debut was her responsibility. The team in charge of localization the technical process of adapting the game for the U.S. and other non-Japanese markets would be led by Gale's colleague, Hiro Nakamura. Early in this process, Gale and Nakamura went to Japan for meetings with Nintendo executives regarding the pending U.S. launch of the Pokemon game.
2: There were many, many people at this table, and Mr. Tajiri was there.
1: Satoshi Tajiri, of course, is the creator of Pokemon. He had been an avid collector of bugs as a kid, and he had based the original Pokemon game in part on those experiences. And now Tajiri was sitting there at a meeting with all the suits from Nintendo, discussing the global future of his creation.
2: My impression of him was that he was extremely sensitive as an individual and very protective of his story. And people were pretty deferential to him. They were concerned that he would receive the information well. You know, it the, it seemed a little overwhelming that we're in a meeting with like 30 people and saying this is what we're doing with your baby.
1: At one point, Gail remembers, Tajiri spoke to her and Nakamura directly about what he saw as Pokemon's uniquely Japanese point of view.
2: He asked if our localization of this product would make it clear that this was about a 10-year-old Japanese boy and the that it was the experience that he was relating of himself as a child. So Hiro and I kind of, you know, were looking at each other kind of and explained that, no, we really want this to be every boy. And so we will not be emphasizing that it's in Japan.
1: This has to have been an uncomfortable moment. Gale and Nakamura were making it clear to Tajiri in real time that the international version of Pokemon would be departing from his original vision, his story, in hopes of speaking to a broader audience, and that they and the rest of the Nintendo of America team would be taking it from here. Despite Pokemon's success in Japan, there was still skepticism within Nintendo about its chances overseas. The Japanese versions of the video games involved a lot of text, and Nintendo executives were concerned that American kids wouldn't want to do all that reading. According to Gale, Nintendo of America discussed a number of ideas for how to make the game more exciting for American kids.
2: From what I remember, there were things like maybe we could apply the structure of the game to something like baseball. We could apply um, kind of a hipper graphic approach that maybe looked more like graffiti.
1: There were even concerns, believe it or not, that the Pokemon characters were too cute to catch on in America which almost led the whole franchise in a pretty weird direction. In a 2000 interview, Pokemon Company CEO Sunakazu Ishihara said, quote, The staff in America submitted their ideas for replacement designs, but we just couldn't believe the kind of stuff they were proposing. They turned Pikachu into something like a tiger with huge breasts. It looked like a character from the musical Cats. When I asked, how is this supposed to be Pikachu? They said, well, look, there's its tail right there. But as all this was happening, Pokemon was becoming bigger and bigger in Japan. And eventually, according to Gale, Nintendo of America realized that they didn't need to mess with the fundamental elements of a game that was already working so well.
2: It really was blowing up in such a huge way. Soon those meetings didn't really involve the idea that we were going to change it and just use the essence of the game engine. We were really going to embrace the brand.
1: There was still a lot of work to be done, including the most important part of the localization process for a video game, translation. Virtually all the translation of the Japanese language dialogue in the first few Pokemon games was done by one guy, a freelance translator named Nob Ogasawara. But then there were the names. There were originally 151 Pokemon. They all had descriptive Japanese names, and they all needed new ones for the international market. Gail Tilden says she and her team had a lot of back and forth about this with Satoshi Tajiri and the people at his game development studio, Game Freak.
2: They were very particular when it came to naming the characters. We would have to submit three groups of names for each evolving set of pokemon and describe why those names were a good fit with the japanese uh, original japanese intention then they would all have to go through legal and it, it was quite a process
1: this bears underlining because it's crazy each pokemon had a japanese name that referred to their appearance or special powers and the us marketing team had to come up with english language names for each pokemon that were equally descriptive So the water-type Pokémon, whose Japanese name translates to showers, for example, became a Vaporeon. And they had to do this, by the way, for every Pokémon in every language that Pokémon was about to roll out in. Gail is pretty sure they ended up creating seven different sets of names, all told.
2: If in the U.S. we were changing a name like to be Charmander, where it has the actual meaning of fire and lizard, then in France you have to do the same thing.
1: In France, the fiery lizard Charmander became known as Salamèche. Mesh means wick, like on a candle, and Salamonde is French for salamander, like a lizard. Of course, at least one character's Japanese name was never considered for translation. Was there ever any serious discussion of giving Pikachu an Americanized name?
2: I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so.
1: The name Pikachu combines the onomatopoeic Japanese word for sparkle with chew, which is how the Japanese language represents a mouse's squeak.
2: I mean, I think the idea that does Pikachu and the way it sounds, that it's an electric mouse, I think there's enough electric and mouse are the combination, the chew sound and the... Um, I don't know. I think you get it.
1: One change they did make to a character's Japanese name was almost too symbolic. In the original Pokemon mythos, the protagonist, a kid in a red hat who goes on adventures with his buddy Pikachu, is named Satoshi after Tajiri. It was one of the more obvious ways Tajiri and his story remained the ghost in this increasingly huge machine. But this was supposed to be the character that American kids related to. So for the American market, they decided to give him a less obviously Japanese-sounding name. They called him Ash.
2: We wanted all kids to want to be Ash. So we changed the name of the character.
1: So that's the video game. Meanwhile, another potentially even more important version of Pokemon was being
3: primed for the American market, the TV show. My belief was that if it was working there in Japan, it could work equally well everywhere else. This is Norman Grossfeld.
1: He's a media executive, producer, and director. Norman broke into TV in the late 80s, directing various spin-offs of the syndicated wealth porn series Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, he worked at NBC Sports, directed NBC's live coverage of the Olympic Games a few times, and eventually wound up as an executive at a New York-based licensing company, which later became known as 4Kids Entertainment. And that's where he was when he got the call.
3: Nintendo started to talking to us about the fact that they had this property in Japan that was seemed to be doing very, very well. They're not really sure it would work internationally, they felt it was a very Japanese concept, and they asked us to take a look at the show.
1: The history of Japanese animation on American TV goes back to the dubbed versions of Japanese language shows like Astro Boy and Speed Racer, which aired in the U.S. in the 1960s. By the mid-90s, if you were an American of cartoon-watching age, you had probably seen a lot of Japanese animation in syndication and on cable networks like Nickelodeon. Along with live-action shows like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, an Americanized version of the Japanese superhero adventure show Super Sentai. Grossfeld saw immense potential in the Pokemon franchise's universal themes, regardless of its Japanese origin. But Japanese imports didn't always hit big. And Norman didn't want to leave the success of this project
3: to chance. I believed that if we were going to take on Pokemon, we were going to have to make some adjustments to it so that it could work in the storytelling style that kids were used to hear.
1: Norman felt that some previous anime adaptations had not found a big audience because they were too faithful to the original and not accessible enough to American kids. And when Norman had his first meeting with ShowPro, the Japanese production company that had created the Pokemon animated series, that's what he told them.
3: And I basically told them my thoughts and feelings about how we need this to be a a show that has mass market appeal, that doesn't stay true to the art of the anime, I said, that is not our audience here. We need to have a global audience, a mass audience of kids. One of the changes Grossfeld
1: proposed during this meeting was scrubbing the animation of all Japanese visual
3: markers. So one of the things we had to do once just looking at the show is that there was a million signs in Japanese in the background. We said we had to take That out and just make it some sort of um, non specific language or use graphics so that kids in Germany would not think it's an American show. Kids in Italy would not think it was a German show. It just had to work for kids everywhere. They could believe that this was their land. Of course, not everything could be changed in post
1: production, which would eventually lead to some amusing moments of awkwardness, like the scene where the character Brock holds up a tray of what are obviously onigiri, Japanese rice balls and his English-dubbed voice says, "'Nothing beats a jelly-filled donut.'" That one became a meme. Norman and 4Kids produced a pilot for the American version, but even with the obviously Japanese visual elements sanded down, they ran into trouble. Despite the show's success in Japan, American TV networks didn't want it. Norman went to Fox Kids, to Kids WB, to Nickelodeon, to the Cartoon Network, No one was interested. They just didn't think it was going to work. Four kids had invested millions of their own dollars into importing Pokemon and could not afford for
3: it to fail. If it didn't succeed, we were going to eat all the costs of adaptation and production and the distribution costs that we had. And that probably would have sunk the company. Without a network on board, they decided to syndicate
1: the show which meant they had to hand-sell Pokemon to one TV station in one market at a
3: time. And because the networks controlled the best time slots, we were on at 6.30 in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning, Monday to Friday, or we were on at 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night, or not prime time for kids. But at least the show was on the
1: air. And there was one advantage to producing the show for syndication instead of for a network. It meant four kids could kind of do whatever they wanted with the show.
3: And what they wanted was to sell merchandise. My company did not participate in the video games royalties. So we had entertainment and we had merchandise licensing.
1: If four kids was going to make money off Pokemon, the entertainment would have to push the merch.
3: I wanted every minute of the TV show to be a commercial for the brand. I know it sounds terrible, but... The idea here for us was that we had to succeed. And so we were able to take the half hour show that we had and analyze every minute of the show and make sure that every minute of that show, every second was serving as a commercial for the brand. There's an irony to all of this. When the Pokemon
1: backlash began, part of it would have to do with the perception that the whole Pokemon brand was a ruthless and shameless money-making operation engineered by Japan to sell stuff to kids. But a good bit of that ruthlessness was an American invention. A lot of what made the cartoon a commercial came from Norman and 4Kids, who found ways to promote something Pokemon-related in almost every frame of the show.
3: One of those ways of doing that was this, who's that Pokemon bumper, which is just A very simple thing, a silhouette going into commercial of a Pokemon, and then we reveal the Pokemon coming back after the commercial break. But we also made sure that we designed the background of that bumper so it's exactly the background of the toy box. Four kids would implement additional changes, including a new score designed
1: to better underline the emotional turns of an episode for child viewers, and even shifting the personality of the Pokemon known as Meowth who was a more philosophical character in the Japanese version, but in America became a wise-cracking henchman to Ash's primary rivals, Team Rocket. All this aside, the defining contribution Norman made to the Pokémon mythos in his work on the series was a four-word slogan that would become both famous and infamous. At the time, in America, nobody knew what the word Pokémon meant. So Norman figured the theme song for the cartoon needed to be somewhat expository, to make it easier for kids to lock in to the concepts behind the show.
3: I felt that it had to have a positioning statement of some sort, kind of a call to action or an explainer line that would help kids understand what it was.
1: He started brainstorming ideas for a catchy hook that would encapsulate, no pun intended, the whole idea of Pokemon.
3: I probably wrote six or eight
1: different variations of things. The hook that won out was, of course, gotta catch them all. To write the song, Norman enlisted a company in New York that had created a bunch of successful and memorable commercial
3: jingles. I felt that that's who I want working on the theme song because I wanted to be, this is my whole thing, is I want it to be a commercial. Basically, I want the 60 seconds to serve as a commercial for the brand.
1: The song they wrote is both a primer and an inspirational anthem, with lyrics about the friendship between humans and Pokemon, helping your Pokemon be the best they can be, and facing every challenge through courage and teamwork. But the phrase, gotta catch em all, was bigger than that song. It wasn't just a lyric or a tagline. It was a slogan that would come to define the Pokemon brand in America. Gale, Norman, and countless hard-nosed executives had thought and planned and worried endlessly. And now the question was, would anybody in America like it? Want it? Kill to have it?
4: I was in the, the third grade back in 1998 when there was first rumblings of this this new game coming from Japan. And I'll never forget opening up this issue of Nintendo Power and hearing about Pokemon Red and Blue.
1: In September of 1998, the Pokemon animated series and the first two Pokemon video games, known as Pokemon Red and Pokemon Blue, were all released in the United States within three weeks of each other. This was the Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment of Pokemania a seismic shift in kid culture that kicked off a national frenzy. Pokemon fan Tim Geddes was in elementary school when it happened.
4: Talking to my friends about it and then of course watching the cartoons and stuff allowed me to kind of feel like I was part of the zeitgeist. I fell in love with Pokemon Red and I fell
1: in love with the TV show all at the same time. The Houston rapper Fat Tony was entering the sixth grade when Pokemania hit. He was already a self-described video game freak, but suddenly he had an obsession in common with a whole lot of people.
5: Pokemon was one of the first video game trends that I was there on trend for it and could talk to everybody in the world about this video game. Unlike before, where where video games was like something that I I mostly kept to myself in, in my room at home. It was a perfect storm of something that could just take over my whole culture.
1: In almost no time, Pokemon went from obscure to nearly unavoidable.
4: You could not be aware of the multimedia-ness of Pokemon in the late 90s. It was everything. It was everywhere.
1: Pokemon Red and Blue became the fastest selling Game Boy games ever selling 200,000 copies within two weeks and four million games by the end of 1998. And as the game became a sensation, that tide lifted one boat in particular, the Pokemon Animated series. TV executive Norman Grossfeld says that even though the syndicated show was airing in less than ideal time slots, it became an almost
3: instantaneous hit all the same. Within maybe a month, our show is outrating Pokemon was outrating all the network shows in these fringe time periods. A year after those meetings where
1: Norman had unsuccessfully pitched the show to networks like Kids WB and Fox Kids, Norman was in a very different position. The networks wanted to be on Team Pokemon very badly. Norman found himself fielding multiple offers during a
3: broadcaster's convention. And now we had Fox and Warner Brothers both wanting... Pokemon, And we literally had them in two different rooms, and we were walking between the rooms with offers. Four Kids
1: eventually accepted what Grossfeld says was literally an offer written on a cocktail napkin from Kids WB, who at the time, according to Grossfeld, ran a distant second ratings-wise to Fox Kids.
3: And I think it was within two weeks, maybe, of us joining the network that they became number one. And it was just because of Pokemon.
1: The Pokemon series would go on to air for 25 seasons and counting. Today, it's broadcast in 176 different countries and in more than 30 languages. And the versions of the show that air in most Western countries are dubs of the American version, not the Japanese version. By January, 1999, another key part of the Pokemon juggernaut had landed in America the U.S. version of the Pokemon card game. We're going to get into the finer points of the cards and the collector culture that grew up around them in our next episode. The gist, though, is that the cards were tactile, tradable, and collectible. They put Pokemon in everybody's hands. Everybody who could find them, anyway, since the cards flew off store shelves faster than the company that owned the American license could produce them. Suddenly, there was another physical object beyond just game cartridges for kids to beg their parents for. And Pokemania was about to get even more intense. And the Pokemon Pokemon is creating a monster of a commotion for American kids.
3: That's all they're wanting now is pure Pokemon. We haven't sold any Yo-Yos or Star Wars merchandise in a
4: long time. Man, those cards. I think the cards might have been the biggest cultural touchpoint of the entire thing. Games journalist Tim Geddes again. The Pokemon cards were a transformative moment of so many kids' lives, introducing them to cards and comic stores, right? The idea that there's this pilgrimage that when you get your allowance or you know you do your little paper run or whatever and you get $4, you're like, I know exactly what I'm doing with this. I'm going to Cards and Comics Central and I'm gonna buy a booster pack. And you and your friends all kind of do this together. You go to the store, you make this like sacred moment. All of you have the cards, you open the packs together, One of you gets a dud pack, one of you gets a hype pack. There were just so many elements that it's not just one thing that made it special. It is the entire thing together.
1: For many of the people who would go on to devote significant time and money to collecting the cards, the actual game you played with them would be kind of unimportant. But Gail Tilden and the marketing team at Nintendo of America still organized a series of mall tournaments designed to make news by attracting large crowds of Pokemon players and fans to compete. Rapper and Pokemon fan Fat Tony is from Houston's Third Ward, in the inner city. And at the time, his local mall was No Great Shakes.
5: I would say it was more like a working class, maybe lower middle class mall, you know what I mean? It was like a Magic Johnson Theater, an arcade called Tilt with a bunch of broken shit in it, and then a CC's Pizza.
1: Traveling to Houston's suburban and comparatively high-end Woodlands Mall for a Pokemon tournament was a revelation, in more ways than one.
5: The woodlands looked like a college campus or something. That might be the moment where I saw physically human beings going crazy for Pokemon for the first time in my life. It probably looked like Christmas time when parents are rushing to Toys R Us to buy stuff. Because it was just pandemonium of kids running, buying Pokemon merch, backpacks, shirts, hats. It was just like Pokemon took over the whole mall.
1: The mall events and other Pokemon card tournaments became so popular that small production houses actually made instructional videos for people looking to step up their Pokemon game. This is from a tape called Becoming the Master, The Ultimate Pokémon Experience, Insider's Guide to Pokémon Tournaments, produced in 1999 by a company called Brentwood Communications and recorded at the Fallbrook Square Mall in West Hills, California. Today, we're going to go into Collector's Guide to the Galaxy and find out all the behind-the-scenes stuff of tournament play with Pokémon. Host Jamie Jacobs is basically doing an ethnography of Pokémon fans, interviewing kids between rounds at a card shop.
2: I think my favorite Pokémon character is Charmander, I think. Or Pikachu, because everybody loves that one. What about you? What I like, who, who I like best, is Pikachu.
6: He's so
1: cute. <laughs> we get handy explainers on how the cards work. Give us some tips on, on how to do well.
6: Well, um, it's kind of just what you draw, but um, it's always to keep your most powerful Pokémon in play.
1: And some footage of intense competition.
7: So, I
2: there? I'm i
7: going
0: to throw a rock at you. <laughs> okay. If you think. And then... No! Fight. Nice. And she I, knocks out uh, First win!
1: Yeah! If you were a card shop clerk in 1999 and you sold Pokemon cards, you were suddenly an essential worker.
2: Here it's half the parents, half the kids.
1: So
7: we get the parents in confused and needing explanations just as often as the kids, you know, going,
6: ooh, my Pokemon.
1: The first animated Pokemon feature film entitled Pocket Monsters, the movie, Mewtwo Strikes Back, had been released in Japan in the summer of 1998. It went on to be the second biggest domestically released movie of that year at the Japanese box office. In 1999, once the games and the cards and the TV series had become a phenomenon in the United States, the rights to release a U.S. version of this movie became a hot property. And not long after they sold the TV show, Norman Grossfeld and four kids were tapped to shop the movie around to American movie studios. One of those studios pitched Norman
3: an unusual idea for the lead voice actor. He said, hey, you know, we really want this we can make this work and, and we're going to bring in leonardo dicaprio to play the voice of ash and it's going to get a lot of buzz we're going to have a lot and we'll get all these celebrities it's going to be really big
1: in 1999 dicaprio was like 25 he'd just been in a movie called titanic that did uh, pretty well and was now one of the biggest stars of his generation Whether he could have been enticed to play Ash in this movie is unclear, but either way, it wouldn't have mattered because Norman says he said no to DiCaprio in that meeting. Because as Norman saw it, having somebody else do the voice would have been weird for the kids who'd grown accustomed to Ash sounding the way he did on the show. Pokémon had become so big so quickly that the addition of Leonardo DiCaprio, a person you generally want involved in a movie if you're making one and he's available, would have taken away from it. Norman ended up making a distribution deal with Warner Brothers.
3: And the deal was pretty good. So we accepted this offer. And then I got a call from this other studio. And I had to say, well, we're we're going with somebody else. And this, I got one of those classic Hollywood moments where he goes, if you don't do this deal with me, you'll never work in this town. literally had that conversation said to me. What ended up happening to Leonardo DiCaprio? Do we know? I think he, he was okay. <laughs> he
1: did all right. He survived that <laughs> setback in his career. Yeah. The Japanese version of the first Pokemon movie is considered superior to the American version. It features a more complex character arc for the primary antagonist, Mewtwo, a weaponized clone of an ancient mythical Pokemon who watches his cloned friends die, then escapes from the lab and begins building a clone army to seek revenge on both humanity and Pokemonity for his cursed existence. It's a very Blade Runner-esque, I want more life father kind of story. The English adaptation of the movie, retitled Pokemon The First Movie and co-written by Grossfeld and two other guys, makes Mewtwo into a less nuanced and more muahaha evil kind of villain. Whatever detrimental effect this had on the movie from a cinematic standpoint, it clearly did not matter to the American kids who made up this film's target audience. The marketing blitz is on for the new Pokemon movie.
3: It's Pokemania everywhere.
1: The upcoming Pokemon the First movie recently caused such a frenzy that the switchboard at Warner Brothers was flooded with 70,000 calls a minute from people desperate for tickets.
3: When Pokemon the First movie came out, Parents were dragged kicking and screaming to the movie. They didn't want to go to it, and it really wasn't made for them.
1: Pokemon, the first movie, opened in the U.S. on November 10th, 1999, and made more than $50 million in the first week. I saw the first Pokemon movie the weekend that bitch came out in Houston. Rapper Fat Tony.
5: It was a movie theater where you could, like, serve your own candy and, like, weigh it out and then buy it. And I got, like pounds of candy fool i got fucking pounds of candy and watched the fuck out that movie and had a great time man i i loved that movie i loved it i loved it
1: u.s screenings of pokemon the first movie were preceded in most theaters by a new animated short called pikachu's vacation which is about pikachu and some of his pokemon friends getting into it with other pokemon at a theme park that's just for pokemon This film is about 20 minutes long, and apart from some narration, it's mostly just Pokemon saying their names over and over and speaking gibberish, and eventually everybody teams up to rescue a Charizard who gets his head
3: stuck in a pipe. There was no dialogue. It was all just Pokemon saying, you know, the thing about Pokemon is they say their name. That's all they say.
1: You can watch this short on the internet, and it's easy to see why it was pure fan service for school-age moviegoers, and
3: also why it was pure torture for parents. And I know, I was, I was in the theater many times watching the audience watching the movie. And you could just see the parents just they just wanted to kill themselves. And kids were loving it. And so in a neighborhood, one parent would be elected, bribed to take the rest of the kids from the neighborhood to the movie that day. The Pokemon movie was
1: causing kids to ditch school in supposedly record-setting numbers. The epidemic became known as the Pokeflu. Pokemon was contributing to delinquency, or at least truancy. So right there, you've got one of the key ingredients for a moral panic. Those panics tend to flourish around things that seem to widen the generation gap between parents and their children. Rock music and then later hip-hop are obvious examples, and Pokemon definitely had that. Because kids were neglecting their studies to go see a movie that looked, to adults, like a bunch of crazy garbage designed to make elementary schoolers want to buy more shit. The movie still ended up making more than $85 million in this country and remains the most successful anime movie ever theatrically released in the US. That's according to a box office mojo list that has a total of three different Pokemon films in the top 10. Pokemania was getting intense. And at Fat Tony's Middle School in Houston, it was turning young people against one another.
5: It was pandemonium. First of all, motherfuckers were getting beat up left and right in my middle school over Pokemon cards and Pokemon games. I was hiding Pokemon cards and parts of my binder so people don't fuck with me. There was violence, but there was also
1: betrayal.
5: And this kid at my school broke into my locker, stole my Pokemon Blue and my Game Boy, it was such a con because he was like helping me find the person that did it and was like, yo, we're going to get like, and then finally we, we were about to get into a fight and he just told me, he was like, yo, I'm the one that stole your Game Boy, blah, blah, blah. Fuck you. You a, you a fat nerd, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? It's like going off. And that wasn't a rare instance. You know what I mean?
1: So, okay. Pokemon, created in Japan, has hit America and blossomed into a nationwide craze. And in some places, anecdotally, it's causing an uptick in locker burglaries and other school hallway shenanigans of that nature. But still, it's just kids having fun, right? Surely there was nothing scary about the Pokemon phenomenon. Or was there?
0: This is Pikachu. One thing I noticed about him right off was
1: his tail. It's a lightning bolt, and it's the satanic Z. This, again, is ordained prophet Stephen Dollins. Dollins is, of course, steering all the way into the religious implications of the fad, painting a picture in which Pikachu, the Lord of Lies, fools kids into basically dethroning God.
0: Now, the object of this game is gotta catch them all. And they tell you that if you catch them all, You become a Pokemon master. Listen, parents, that word master will appeal to any child because they can become a somebody. They can become a master. And you know what? If you're the master of something, you don't need mom, you don't need dad, you don't need grandparents, you don't need aunts and uncles, you don't need school, and you probably don't even need a church because you're a master.
1: You can become a god. So obviously, Dolan's sermon represents the more bonkers end of the spectrum of Pokemon discourse around this time. Nobody can dish hyperbole quite like a former pro wrestler turned evangelist. But this view of Pokemon as a threat to the well-being of the children who enjoyed it was actually a pretty mainstream viewpoint around this time.
6: If you have a kid without
2: a conscience, it will be stolen, whether it's a gold chain, a new bicycle, a pair of sneakers, leather jackets, or Pokemon cards. So parents have to talk to their kids and limit this fad.
1: That was NBC News in November 1999. Also in November of 1999, Time Magazine, part of the same media conglomerate as Warner Brothers Pictures, distributors of the Pokemon movie, published a pretty wild cover story that raised similar concerns about the game as a source of moral rot. The headline is Beware of the Pokemania. The first paragraph contains the words disquieting, unnatural, suspicious, devilishly, bizarre, feral, yucky, childish, and arcane. The story is by Howard Chua-Yun and Tim Larimer, who at one point write, The key principle of the pokeocracy is acquisitiveness. The more Pokémon you have, the greater power you possess. The slogan is gotta catch them all. And never underestimate a child's ability to master the Poké Arcana required to accumulate such power. The ease with which they slip into cunning and thuggery can stun a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. Grown-ups aren't ready for their little innocence to be so precociously cutthroat. This story is really weird. It feels like it's written by someone who sees the world exclusively from a disapproving parental perspective, but has also somehow never met a child. Like, if you want to see hardwired greed, watch what happens when a five year old decides they want something a two year old has. Anyway, what lurks by implication behind this story's poke paranoia is the fear of the unknown. Kids asking their parents to buy them shit goes back to whenever they invented better toys than that hoop you roll around with a stick. And America is the nation that gave the world, and its own children, the Cabbage Patch Kid, the Ninja Turtle, and the Beanie Baby, all of which kicked off brief but intense and sometimes even violent fads. But somehow, Pokemon, a kid cult phenomenon that just happened to be of Japanese origin, was an unprecedented assault on young American
4: minds. Video games up to that point for a lot of parents in America specifically, it was Mario jumping on turtles. That was pretty much it.
1: Games journalist and lifelong Pokemon super fan Tim Geddes.
4: So to get this idea that you are a character in a story that felt very culturally Japanese, but then there's also a language to itself of these Pokemon and what they do, and they evolve, and they their stones and the different moves that they have, and the gym leaders, and all of this, these words that I, I can imagine parents being like, what this this sounds culty in a way.
1: The animated series South Park was in its 3rd season in 1999. They mocked the Pokémon panic in an episode that aired a few weeks before this time cover story came out. In the episode, the South Park kids get obsessed with a crappy Japanese cartoon called Chin Pokémon that is obviously just a big commercial for a bunch of products. And then Kenny has a seizure while playing the Chin Pokemon video game, and it turns out that the cartoon is actually part of a plot by the Japanese to brainwash children and turn them into child soldiers so that Japan can conquer the US. Eventually, the parents of South Park figure out the one way to cure their kids of Chin Pokemon fixation. The moms and dads start liking Chin Pokemon, which kills the fad immediately. I mean, it's South Park, so there's also a running joke about Asian men's penises. But in their own deliberately offensive way, South Park creators Matt Stone and Trey Parker were also pointing out the under-discussed obvious, the vein of xenophobia behind parental concern about Pokemon. As anthropologist Dr. Christine Yano sees it, the Pokemon panic was a profoundly American phenomenon.
6: I actually think it relates to just how puritanical we are. That we, you know, throw up our arms at at anything that might hint of, what shall I call it, satanic consumption. (laughs) As, quote, free as we think we are, we're, we're quite bound.
1: Before long, some U.S. schools banned the cards and the games to minimize the disruption they could create. Back at Greenwood Elementary School today, the principal joined a list of educators banning Pokemon because the card trading is so competitive and consuming
2: i don 't have anything against them I just don 't want them to you know distract us from what our job here is. The banning thing was interesting
1: former Nintendo executive Gail Tilden:
2: It kind of combines with some other negativity. there was especially like a religious aspect where some certain religious groups started burning the cards. Even later in around 2001 or two, we had a Fatwa issued against Pokémon in the Middle East, and we had to get some entertainment things out of there. One thing about Pokémon is they could never think that the content was something horrible. So people definitely had to come up with, you know, what we now call fake news, some type of conspiracy story to say that it had some evil underpinnings. You know, that's just so ridiculous.
1: Gail says the Pokemon backlash did create PR issues for the company. They pushed back, she says, by pointing out how much the Pokemon games had to teach kids about logic and math. And when it comes to video games, there's always the old hand-eye coordination argument to be made. But Gail is also a parent. And she points out,
2: It makes your job harder when you have to say no, but that's your job. Like, my son would get addicted to a video game when it came out, and he would be willing to play for hours, and it's like, no.
1: And maybe it's not surprising that the parents who were being prevailed upon by their children to finance all this maniacal Mm -hmm. completism would be drawn to conspiracy theories about its source. Speaking as a parent, when your child gets obsessed with anything to the point that nothing else matters, it can be a real zone of conflict. But it might also be a crucial part of the process of letting your kids grow
7: up. I was noticing that a lot of times the things kids were interested in, including my own little kids, were being demonized by adults, including schools. And I think that they were wrong. This is anthropologist Joe
1: Tobin. He's the editor of a book called Pikachu's Global Adventure, an anthology of scholarly writing about the Pokemon phenomenon and what it reveals about the globalization of culture.
7: Adults are critical of children for their tastes, but not as critical for our own tastes. And I thought, before getting critical of a kid's choice in a media product, you really have to get to know the product and see the kids interacting with the product. And I think part of the problem with moral panics, including worrying about kids and media and worrying about Japan as a yellow peril, is that we project one narrative onto what's actually very complex interactions.
1: Specifically, the interactions parents have with their kids around media are always emotionally complex. Because the moment your kid has their own ideas about what they like, even if it's just a cartoon, it's one of the ways they begin to push away from you. It's a first step on the road to independence. Obviously, there were cultural, historical, and probably on some level, racial factors underpinning the moral panic around Pokémon. But I think what you also have to take into account is sadness. You're never ready for your kids to disconnect from you, even in small ways, and each time it happens, you mourn that piece of your connection. For all the joy there is in watching your kids grow up, there's also a sense of loss. For a lot of parents, watching their kids become absorbed in the indecipherable world of Pokemon has to have felt like that. Like a rehearsal for letting them go in more significant ways. The moral panic around Pokemon, a game created as a kind of memorial for Satoshi Tajiri's own vanished childhood, may have been rooted in those feelings.
7: I think that what we do is, especially when they start going to the toy store or the grocery store with you and choosing things, we project our own anxieties onto them, so we say, I can't believe you want that junk.
1: Adults generally don't do that to other adults, at least not adults that we like. We're also able to enjoy junk ourselves by telling ourselves our consumption of it is ironic or a vacation for our brains. We don't always give young kids credit
7: for being able to appreciate things in a similarly nuanced way. I think because adults have an ability to wield power over little kids. We do that all the time, but that doesn't mean we have a right to, to be so scornful of their tastes.
6: There seems to be a fundamental difference between attitudes towards consumption and capitalism in the United States and Japan.
1: Anthropologist Christine Yano again.
6: In some ways, if you think of Japanese who have gone through their own kind of periods of loss and, and really having to deal with modernity, for them being able to consume is being able to relish their place in modernity, if you want to put it that way. So they see it as a positive thing. Why should I deny myself the ability to buy what I want, to maybe become part of what I buy? And with, with no sense of, or very little sense of irony or critique.
1: And our reaction to Pokemon's sudden popularity among American kids was a classically American reaction. Not just because it was kind of racist when you got down to it, although kind of racist when you get down to it is kind of our thing, but it's not our only national neurosis. The U.S. is a consumerist country rooted in a Puritan disdain for indulgence, and we tie ourselves in knots trying to negotiate that contradiction. Denying ourselves and treating ourselves and coming up with justifications for treating ourselves. Other cultures came up with St. Nicholas and Father Christmas, But the USA came up with the modern Santa and turned him into a kind of craftsman-slash-god, in part to launder the consumerist orgy aspect of Christmas by pretending it was some guy with a workshop at the North Pole and not us showering our kids with plastic crap, and that we weren't modeling materialistic values as long as we swore up and down that some elf whittled this PlayStation. Joe Tobin again.
7: I think we project our own anxieties about capitalism onto kids who we see as vulnerable to being interpolated into capitalism. But, of course, we are the ones projecting also onto them and making them into these little capitalist fiends. When I think at first, you know, they they like having stuff like we do, and they like having collections, and they like completing their collections. They like having favorites. And it's only when you get this selling them in stores that you introduce a different kind of economy. At first, it's like, what do you like best or which have have the most fighting power? But the kids are more interested in Pokemon that had the most interesting narratives and were the cutest at first. I think there are a lot of Turbo Media products. I just don't think Pokemon is one of them.
1: Games journalist Tim Geddes again.
4: Video games have always been this kind of communal um, experience. But I think what Pokemon allowed was for kids to feel like they were doing something that had never been seen before and that parents didn't understand. And it's all that that kind of stuff that like kids want. Rapper Fat Tony.
5: You know, man, if Pokémania happened again and I was a parent, I'd probably give my kids some mace or razor blades or something so they can defend themselves.
1: Next time on The Big Hit Show... Pokemon isn't just for kids anymore.
6: We continue to go through the box. I was like, there's no way every single pack in here is a hollow," And it was. Uh, I just about lost my mind.
1: We meet the consummate king of the high stakes Pokemon secondary market. This is a Shadowless 9.5 Charizard. Uh, value-wise, maybe 100000 something like that. And we'll learn that when it comes to catching certain Pokemon, it helps to be really, really patient.
7: A lot of the legendary Pokemon, the only way to get them to be shiny is to just be lucky. So you have to save in front of one of them and just turn the game on, encounter it. Is it shiny? Nope. Turn the game off, turn the game back on, try again. And hope that that one in 4096 odds plays out for you eventually.
1: (laughs) From higher ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Taylor Jones and Sabrina Fang. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Production help from Tyler Hill. Alex McGinnis is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Theme music and studio direction by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Our editor is Jamie York. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jen Eleven is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman.